Good morning, good afternoon, and good day from wherever in the world you may be joining us. Welcome to another edition of Sales TV Live. Today, we are talking about selling in a world that never stops changing. I'm joined by Frank Cespedes, Senior Lecturer of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, with a rich background in running businesses, serving on boards, consulting worldwide, lecturing, and authoring, Frank brings unparalleled insights into the evolving world of sales and sales management. Frank, welcome. Rob, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Our pleasure to have you. Frank, please tell me a little bit about you, uh, your journey into sales and, and where you are today. Well, um, look, my background is not particularly uh, exotic. Um, I went to graduate school, uh, started teaching at Harvard's business school, um, made my way up the hierarchy, um, and then left. Uh, and with some others, we started a business. I ran it for 10 years. And we got lucky. Uh, you know, I can spin this a different way when necessary, but frankly, it was dumb luck. We sold at exactly the right time. Uh, the business school called me back up, said, how'd you like to be a professor again? That's what I've been doing uh, once again for the last eight years. And my journey in the sales, again, is not particularly exotic. From the get-go, when I was an assistant professor, uh, my first uh, book was about distribution channels. And once you do that, you bump up against sales. Then when I left and ran a business, as I'm sure you and our listeners know, when you've got to meet payroll every month, your respect for sales increases geometrically. And then when I got back to academia, uh, I was teaching strategy. And I discovered there was hundreds of books about strategy. There are thousands of books about sales, but I could not find a single book or for that matter, even an article that put together the two, strategy and sales. So I wrote a book about that. And then the book that, um, uh, you know, my most recent book, Sales Management uh, That Works. So that's my journey into the topic. Fantastic. So speaking of this book, I want to make sure it's on screen there. Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Uh, I want to jump right into it. I, I've heard you talk about the context specificity in sales across different products, services, in and regions. But Frank, isn't sales is sales is sales across the board? No, no, no. The, you know, you're, you know, what is, who was it? Gertrude Stein, a rose is a rose is a rose. No, it's not. That's not true in sales. It is context uh, specific. Uh, it, it varies by product. Uh, selling software is different than selling professional services, is different than selling durables, etc. cetera. Uh, it varies by uh, customer, even in the same industry. You're selling a Ford that's different than Tesla or General Motors, et cetera. And it's very, very uh, culturally sensitive. It varies uh, by uh, region and culture. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America or China 
or the Middle East. Uh, so it is very context specific. And yet, and this I think is the irony, for some reason, it is that area of business where people feel most comfortable making these huge generalizations, usually unsupported by any empirical data whatsoever, beyond what in academia you and I would call N equals one. When I sold for Oracle, which by the way was 15 years ago, this worked for me, I'm sure it'll work for you in this completely different category. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that specious advice, especially from investors, right? I mean, you know, they're always generalizing from the one investment they made that actually hit it. So it is not sales as sales as sales. That's, that's a very deceptive way of looking at this core business activity. So how would then that approach impact things like training and even before that hiring? Yeah, well, I mean, it impacts it, uh, you know, the way you would expect any uh, managerially intensive activity to be impacted. You've got to know what you're looking for and why. And you've got to know what you're looking for and why in the market as it exists today, not yesterday. The key here is to understand what are the relevant sales tasks in your market, given your company's business strategy. If you do have a strategy, which by the way is a, is a big if, right? Many companies confuse strategy with let's pick a big number and go for it, that kind of thing. But if you do have a strategy, it says something about who is and who is not our target customers and segments. That in turn says something about buying processes and buying criteria. And then you start to worry about sales tasks and hiring criteria. The most important thing about selling is and always has been the buyer. Who buys, why, and how. And that varies. It varies by industry, product, country, strategy, et cetera. That, that I think, is the implication. So uh, we have a member of the audience sharing with us. Bob Britton says, oh, yes, selling in the EMEA is very different from selling in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think well, we all inherently know that, but then we seem to forget that when we say things like, well, sales is sales is sales. I mean, I think there are certain basics, you know, listening, understanding the customer that are relevant uh, across the world and across many, not all, but across many industries. But they're basics. You know, they are at best, they they may or may not even get you in the door. I don't think they're the, the bulk of what you and I mean by selling and sales management. Right. Uh, Yulia Kern. Uh, shares a question with us uh, regarding the strategy we we're just talking about. What yeah. would be your advice on convincing the upper management to come up with clear strategy? Yeah, that's a great question. There's no one answer. And what I would also say is that uh, convincing upper management is getting tougher, not easier. And Rob, you and I have talked about this, but let's share it with the audience. Um, there have been very, very big 
changes in the C-suite, you know, the senior executive leadership group in companies around the world in the last 25 years. There's a great bit of research done by a colleague of mine a couple of years ago here at Harvard Business School. And what she found is that on average, if you look at the global 1,000, you know, the 1,000 biggest companies in the world, the number of executives reporting to the CEO in those companies in the last 25 years has doubled, twice as many. But if you then step back and ask yourself, who are these people? Where they come from? What were they doing before they became senior executives? The reality is that very, very few of them were general managers in the sense in which we typically use that phrase in business schools. You know, a a GM is somebody running a line of business or has profit and loss responsibility. The vast majority of those additions have been specialists, the CIO, legal, data analytics, you know, today, head of AI, or something like that. And the reality is that fewer people than ever before have made it to the C-suite with prior prolonged experience in customer-facing activities like sales and marketing, right? So the question is a very good one because that composition of the C-suite affects, in my view, a fundamental responsibility of any leadership group and for that matter, any board of directors helping to formulate and implement a market-relevant strategy. So the question is good. It's not easier. In fact, it's more difficult because of changes in the C-suite. And, you know, ultimately, companies tend to respond when sales go down, profits take a hit, et cetera. But, you know, uh, our participant's question is a good one because she's asking, what do we do before the fact. Right. Uh, I don't have any one single bit of advice there, but obviously what you need is two things. You need processes that keep the C-suite in touch with information at the point of sale, and that's more than data. Those processes are more than data. And secondly, and this is where the, um, in my view, the uh, responsibility falls on sales, You need sales leaders who are not just sales leaders. They're good business people. They understand more than simply top-line motion and top-line volume. They can talk about enterprise value, and they are financially literate. That's a big, big change going on in sales. So let's stay with sales leaders for a moment. Um, Let's talk a little bit about people. When it comes to sales hiring, what's the biggest mistake companies are making? Um, I'm going to cite two, all right? Then we'll take it wherever you want, Rob. The first one, and the research about this is definitive, although I notice whenever I cite this research to executives, it's sort of like the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, etc. But an over, vast over-reliance on interviews. Managers in all functions, but especially busy sales managers, tend to vastly overrate their ability 
to identify talent, identify fit based on a few interviews. So that's that's the um, uh, the number one uh, mistake. And the number two mistake, I think, is that the, the hiring criteria themselves are often unclear and they are what I call Boy Scout criteria. You know, we want someone who's personable, energetic, talented, etc. And the criteria are usually so vague, you ask yourself, what do you actually do with those criteria when you're sitting across the table from someone and you need to make a yes or no hiring decision. And again, what the research tells us is that most of the time what people do with those vague criteria is basically try to clone themselves, right? They, they basically say, this is what worked for me 5, 10, 15 years ago. I'm going to try to find someone who I think feels like me uh, in that past life. Those are the two biggest mistakes, and there are things you can do uh, to mitigate those mistakes. So there are so many questions I want to dig into regarding the interviewing and uh, criteria, but I think this question will underline their importance. So I want to ask this one first. What is the impact of turnover in sales? And how is that different from any other part of the company? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, there's different types of turnover. There's voluntary turnover and involuntary turnover. So if the involuntary turnover is high because, A, someone wasn't performing or an ethical breach or et cetera, that's one impact. On the other hand, if you look at the data, and the data about this, by the way, has, uh, with the exception of the pandemic, remained remarkably consistent. Uh, throughout my career, in the aggregate, in other words, across companies, across industries in the United States, sales turnover tends to vary between 20 to 30 percent annually. It goes up when the economy is strong and talented people have more options. It goes down when the economy is weak, there isn't much hiring, and you know, people don't want to switch jobs, but it's 20 to 30%. And there are two implications to that number. One is that number tends to be higher than almost any other function in business. And secondly, think about what that number means, 20 to 30%. What that means is that for the vast majority of companies, they have to recruit, train, socialize the equivalent of their entire sales force every three to five years. That's a big deal. And in fact, if you look at the money that companies spend on hiring, training, uh, entertainment uh, expenses, comp, etc., on sales annually, it's typically a bigger number than their biggest capital expenditure expense, but it's usually treated much less rigorously. You know, I always remember an executive who told me, and it turned out he was right. He said, Frank, watch what you're going to see. Most companies pay more attention to buying software than they do to hiring and training people. And he's certainly right about that in sales. 
So Bob Britton asks, and I have a, a similar question I want to follow up with. Uh, Bob says, why don't more companies assess their sellers to understand their competencies and attributes? When yeah. they don't, it's like playing poker without ever looking at the hand you were dealt. You always have to bluff. Yeah, that's exactly. Al along yeah. those same lines, what I want to ask you is, why do so many companies rely heavily on those unstructured interviews for sales hiring. And most well, I mean, I think a, a couple of uh, questions, and by the way, I think Bob's analogy here with the, um, <laughs> you know, the blind poker player is a very, very good one. One reason, and I don't think we should ignore this, um, some, some people are lazy, right? We've always done it this way, uh, lazy. The second reason though, and I think this is more common is the assumption that I know it when I see it. In other words, you know, through the interviews, I know it. Somehow I, you know, I'm, I'm the horse whisperer. I can do this. Now, what the research tells us is that some people can, you know, I mean, in this is true in investments, right? It is really, really difficult to do better than an index fund but occasionally some people do it over extended periods of time, right? Warren Buffett, uh, uh, et cetera. But that is by far the exception, not the rule. And then there's a third reason, I think. And, and it's because, you know, it, it's tied to the centrality of sales in virtually any profit-seeking organization. So many other decisions in a company, hiring decisions, not just in sales, but everywhere else. Uh, capacity, how much capacity should we have? Operations, uh, etc. So many of those other decisions depend on sales forecasts and the ability of the sales force to make those forecasts, right? That's why change is difficult in sales. The metrics in sales tend to be short-term, make the numbers, make the numbers, make the numbers every month, every quarter, because so much else depends on that. As a result, if you're hiring, if a salesperson leaves, either because you fired them or they got a better job, the incentive is to find another warm body as soon as possible. So that's another reason, I think, uh, that you see these reliance on the interviews, and usually only max two or three uh, in, uh, in sales hiring. In other words, systemic reasons, as we would now say. You know, to that point about finding another warm body as soon as possible, I often glibly say to uh, leaders I'm speaking with, well, I get it because empty seats don't fill quota. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they cease to understand the implications of, of that short-term thinking and the turnover. It, no, I think, I mean, I, I agree. The road to hell is paved with <laughs> a series of decisions like that because what you're doing, uh, you know, uh, again, I get back to our, um, our uh, listeners' great comment about playing poker blind, let's assume you're a gifted blind poker player, that you actually get it right half the time. That means you're getting it wrong half the time. And that's not invisible to the rest of the sales force. You're, you're essentially perpetuating 
a culture of underperformance. So I agree with you entirely. Empty seats don't make quota, but folks that don't belong in the seats uh, are going to uh, cause havoc as well. Absolutely. So I, I want to make sure that I had left time for this, um, but I also wanted to leave it for the end. What can you tell us about the gap? That is the growing gap between senior leadership and frontline employees? Well, I've already, in some sense, um, you know, alluded to that in response to the earlier question, Rob, about, you know, what can you do to convince senior leadership that having a strategy uh, that's relevant in the field is a good idea. But that gap is there. I mean, I've done research, you know, we, uh, people can read about it in the book that you're very generously uh, uh, promoting here. But if you look at research, when you talk to senior executives about sales, right, then separately, when you talk to the sales leaders in the same company about senior executives, it's a dialogue that rarely happens. They're, they're sort of like trains passing in the night. And because of the evolution of the composition of the C-suite in companies, that gap has gotten wider. And by the way, it's important to understand the reasons for the gap. I mean, companies do not wake up in the morning and say, wow, you know, let's get disconnected from our customers. That, that's not the way it happens. If you ask yourself, why has this happened in the C-suite? It's because of the data revolution, right? Specialization is increasingly important. If you want to be a marketer or a sales leader or a finance leader or a supply chain leader, what you need to know today is qualitatively more complex than 10, 20 years ago. So you can see why that happens. But the reality, and it's ironic, uh, Rob, you, you will, res you will uh, resonate with this as well. The C-suite in many companies now looks more like a discipline-based faculty meeting than it does like a group of executives who are about profit maximization. So that gap is there. We can understand why that gap is there, but it's costly. And again, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there are other things that may be relevant, but for purposes of time, uh, I will cite that old phrase that I'm sure most of our listeners know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's not true. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So at the end of the day, you, you, work, you work on that. I think that's the ultimate glue that will or will not address uh, the gap we're speaking about. Fantastic. Uh, Frank, this has been wonderful. Where can people learn more about you? How can they get in touch with you? Oh, I, you know, I'll cite the title of that wonderful old movie, The Usual Suspects. I mean, you know, you go to LinkedIn. Uh, I teach at Harvard's Business School. We have a faculty page that I believe, you know, I haven't been there in years, but I believe is, um, um, you know, available to the public. And then, you know, the book you mentioned, Sales Management That Works, it's published by Harvard Business Review Press. You can learn about that on Amazon or, you know, at the uh, HBR uh, Press uh, website. 
Fantastic. Uh, this has been another edition of Sales TV Live. Uh, we now have a newsletter. Uh, don't miss an episode. Get show highlights, uh, beyond the show insights, and reminders of upcoming episodes. You can scan the QR code on screen, or you can visit us at sales TV live forward slash newsletter. Frank, thank you so much for being here with us today. On behalf of myself and everyone here at Sales TV Live, on behalf of our audience, we wanted to, to thank you for being an active part of the show and uh, a great conversation. So again, thank you. Rob, I thank you and I'll say farewell to our audience away. An executive guest said farewell to my MBA students about two years ago. He said, now stay positive, but test negative. There we go. Awesome. Thank you very much.